Those are amazing words that we're singing, and as we're going to move right into our study in Philippians, how many of you are just asking the Lord to give you his joy this morning? Let's just raise our hands together and just begin this message. Lord, just fill us with your spirit. Can we pray that together? Lift your hands. Lord, fill us this morning. Lord, I need your joy. Lord, for all the circumstances in this room. Lord, some are filled with joy and peace today and some are not. Some get it and some lose it. And Lord, today may there be that breakthrough, that tremendous awareness of your presence this morning. Lord, you delight in meeting the needs of your children. And Lord, today, may we lay hold by faith on your promises. Fill us to overflowing, we pray, with your spirit. In Jesus' name, can you say amen? Amen. You can have a seat and open to Philippians chapter 2. We're about a third of the way through the letter this morning, so that means by now most of you should be getting a little bit of joy in your lives. Amen? The rest of you I'm praying for. Now, if you don't know who I am, my name is Terry McNabb, and uh, I am just here um, just to assist your church as as the church is going through just a short transition, and Kevin has become your pastor. And uh, I work with a ministry called Poyman Ministries. Poyman means shepherd. And we are a group of very old, tottering pastors that go and assist churches through different needs, uh, some in times of you know, a little bit of, of transition. Maybe they get a new pastor. Uh, I do a lot of pastoral coaching online and probably working with about 10 churches right now around the country. Um, but I pastored Calvary Chapel Portland for 23 years. And um, this is my calling now to just be of assistance to churches. And I've known, um, you know, your Pastor Doug and Ryan and Kevin for many, many years, Wayne, who recently passed away. Um, and so Kevin asked me to teach in this passage here this morning uh, as part of the team. And so I'll continue in our flow. And I personally love this short passage that we have this morning. It's chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. The title of my message will excite you, Joy in Submission. You saw that up there, and you were just thrilled by that title, weren't you? You are not telling the truth. This is one of those little passages you might read, and you would pass through it, pick out a few words that you like, and the rest of them you go, well, I'm not sure what that means, and you just keep going. This is a chance to work out something that I think is really important. Are you with me? Okay, if you're not, there's a second service. We'll, we'll fix your attitude by then. Follow with me. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 12 through 18. 
Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among, among whom also you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I have, am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. We remember that Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell. You wouldn't know that from these words, would you? He kind of hits at, hints at it about being poured out as a sacrifice. He is wondering about whether he will die in that place. We remember that the city of Philippi had become a Roman colony. That meant that the normal course of life has been disrupted by this foreign power. And so, generally, life is unfair and harsh. And what that does to church life is it disrupts things. And as I shared previously, it is my job now to go into churches where normal life has been disrupted. My, my wife calls me the ER pastor. And I am kind of wired to just be able to go in and assist churches through upsets. Now, I remember it was 30 years ago last summer that I came to Portland. In 1993, stepped into a little church that had been through an upset. Um, and that was the beginning of my ministry. The church was little. The pastor stood up on a Sunday morning and said, this is my last Sunday. I quit. I showed up two weeks later wondering what God was going to do with my pathetic life. I had just left a business failure in California. I was relocating up here, had family in the area. My brother passed, my brother-in-law pastored Portland Christian Center. My father-in-law pastored an assembly church in Seattle. And so here I was wondering what was next for me. I was 35 years old, three little girls, six, eight, and 10. And the Lord had brought my family here just in the middle of the crisis of that church, Calvary Chapel, Portland. I ended up being there for 23 years. And I didn't know that that beginning was going to prepare me for what I do now, is church upset. But I remember thinking at 35, Lord, I am just going to trust you so much 
I'm going to love these people so perfectly. I'm going to be the best Bible teacher I can be. And even though upsets happen at other churches, it won't ever happen at this church ever again. Why are you laughing at me? What an, I meant it sincerely, but it was a really naive thing for me to think and say. And now as I talk to pastors in Georgia and South Carolina and Idaho, and they're going through some upset, and my favorite word as I'm coaching pastors is normal. Church upset is normal. So just calm down. You're going to be okay. If you cause the upset, let's fix it. If you didn't cause it, then the Lord is with you, and you can't so stress out that you can't minister to the people. I look back and I realize how many years I wasted being worried about something when I didn't need to. The Lord is faithful. Amen? My outline today is in the form of some questions, and there will be a quiz at the end of this message. So the first question is, and I'm going to give you the answers, what is joy? I think I know what joy is until I don't have it. I have it, and then I lose it. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is random. It's purely from circumstances working out. I'm happy and then I'm not happy. I looked up just to refresh my mind the definition of joy. It's related to rejoicing. Rejoicing is our reaction to seeing God working in our circumstances. And let me tell you, in the worst of circumstances, God is working if you can see it. He's working if you can't see it, but he's working, and I hope you are able to see what God is doing, even in difficult circumstances. And when you learn to be able to see what God is doing, then you will start rejoicing a whole lot more. What stays with you in your ability to see God working is joy. Joy is the emotional condition that stays with you. As I see there, did you see what God did? Did you see what God did? Things are a mess, but look at what God did in the middle of that fiery trial. You can start to have joy in any circumstance if you learn to see what God is doing. We want our whole lives to be in the joy of the Lord. But the truth is, this life is hard. And that is quite a challenge. It's easy to say, oh, you should have the joy of the Lord. I believe in the idea of it, but I would like to experience the joy of the Lord all of the time. What Paul is telling us to do is key to getting to that place of experiencing the joy of the Lord. And that phrase, it's not just obey and be happy. 
it is that phrase to work out your salvation. And we're going to work out what that phrase means. The truth is, every person born into this world is born into a common experience. It doesn't matter if you are in America, in Mexico, in India, in Europe. It doesn't matter the ethnic background, the economic background. It does not matter. There is a common experience. We are all born into a world that has been afflicted by the consequences of sin. It has nothing to do with culture or your family. We're all in this common experience. Some people have a better life than others. Some people are born into affluence, some into poverty, some into uh, controlling governments, and others periodically into benevolent rulers. The condition's the same. There is an inner emptiness of soul. There is a compelling drive to find purpose of life. You can go anywhere, and I have traveled all over the world, and it's amazing. I, years ago, I went to India, and I'm thinking, I've got to teach in churches in India, and I'm thinking, Lord, what do I say to them? How do I present the gospel that I know in our American culture to them? They are just like us. And in many ways have an advantage because we in our American affluence sometimes think we don't need God because life can be pretty good here. Separation from God, emptiness of soul, searching for purpose in an empty world is a common experience for everyone born into this world. God has created you for purpose. And everything begins with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if there is a creator, design means that what God created, he created for purpose. And all of us knows there must be a purpose for our life. It's fascinating. In any culture around the world, it's just in our hearts. Why am I here? What is life about? Where does that come from? That comes from the fact that we were created for purpose, even if we're not sure quite what it is yet. Things laying around our house were made for a purpose. Many years ago, I used to go on missions trips to England back in the 80s when I attended Calvary Costa Mesa. Uh, in free time on our evangelism, I would go into the antique stores in England. A lot of old stuff in England. Everything's old in England. But I would find these objects, these random objects in antique stores, and I would think, oh, that's cool. And I would buy some of it and bring it home and show my wife these treasures I brought home from England. And she would go, what, what do you think she'd say? What is that? And I'd go, 
I don't know, but it's really cool, and I thought you could lay it around the house somewhere. You go to antique stores and pick up stuff, and you go, well, I wonder what this is. I don't know. Should we buy it? Whenever that was made, it was made for a purpose. And it's it fascinating to go, what is it? Well, I was just in an antique store in Battleground with my wife. I picked up something, said, what is this? The antique store goes, and the store owner goes, well, it's a knife sharpener. I'm going, I knew that. Purpose, purpose, what is this for? I've agonized in my life in my younger years to say, Lord, what am I here for? Why am I here? I've shared before as I've spoken here that my father was an alcoholic. And what that does to you as a child growing up in an alcoholic or um, substance abuse home is it just leaves you aimless without direction. And I had nobody saying, oh, Terry, look, you're good at this, or I'm going to help you grow in this. Uh, I have nine grandkids now, and I think, well, now is my chance to invest in my grandkids. Uh, if they would only listen to me. Well, I discovered as a teenager, I was good at a couple of things. I was good at gymnastics, just had a natural aptitude for it. Uh, and I was good at music from a young child. And I, I, I just love to do those two things. And I would hit the wall. I remember thinking about 18 that I had become as good as I could uh, as a musician to play drums without some instruction as a teacher. I went and found somebody. I grew up in Los Angeles, so there's lots of famous drummers or musicians, and I studied with famous name drummers. And Now, in order to get out of me what I was gifted to do, I had to pay somebody to make me sweat. And I pushed, and I was determined. I thought, this is it. I'm going to be a professional drummer. And I was pretty good, and the closer I got to it, the more I became disillusioned with my plans. That's an old story. Maybe you could share your story, that you had a plan, and you were succeeding, and you had opportunities, and it was just disappointing. I hate that. The very thing you are gifted to do is, leaves you empty. Why? Because it's without the Lord. The Lord has given you those things to serve him. What turned me toward ministry was a phone call that should have changed my life. When my oldest daughter, Lauren, who leads worship here once in a while, was a year and a half old. I got a phone call from a drummer named Cactus Mosier. He played drums for Steve Taylor at the time when Steve Taylor was a big deal in the 80s. Um, he goes, Terry, my wife is pregnant. Uh, I can't go on the next tour. Uh, I got your number from Amy Grant's drummer, 
Keith Edwards, and Keith says, you can do the tour, you're good enough to do this, and I thought, this is it. I got, I got the phone call to go up to the majors. I'm going to the Dodgers from the minors, and I thought, this is it. This is my big break. I'm going to go on a national tour with Steve Taylor. Two days later, I got a call back from Cactus. What a name. He said, sorry, Steve has found another drummer, and we're going to go with him. That other drummer was a friend of mine, used to be a friend of mine. I'm just kidding. And I was at the top of the world and then crashed. And that happened a couple of times. And the more I was around the business, every time I would get an opportunity to be in the studio or to meet people, I would think, well, this is it. God's giving me opportunities. And it all backfired because God was showing me what it looked like inside the music business. And my reaction was, I don't want this. It was so distasteful. The instability of it, the uncertainty of it. Not that it's wrong or immoral to go do it, but it didn't suit me that I couldn't count on anybody saying yes and it was going to work out. And I... After that happening a couple of times, my wife, as a faithful wife, said, now, Terry, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, well, the only other thing I'm really excited to do is to go into the ministry. And she laughed at me. She thought, that's crazy that I was a quiet person. I never said two words in social situations and the joke's on me now that this is what I do. But there was something in my heart that I wanted my life to serve the Lord. And as I began to just say, okay, Lord, if that's what you want to do, the Lord just took me and helped me work it out. And that's the key of what Paul is talking about today. My second question is then, why does God allow suffering? If God is love, that's what John says in 1 John. If what Jesus said is true, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, why then does God allow suffering either in the world or in our lives. Where was God when this happened? Why is this happening in other countries? The atheist says, well, suffering proves God doesn't exist. And they have wrapped up the argument. There, there can't be a God. Look at that. But the Bible tells us the rest of the story. That suffering is the consequence of man rejecting God. 
that God then allows suffering to continue in this world to tell us to trust him and not get too comfortable in this world. Read Romans 8. The Bible tells us that the suffering of this life, no matter what it is, is temporary. And that one day, you and I, who have trusted in Jesus, will see the Lord face to face. That is called in the Bible, the blessed hope. As bad as it ever gets, this is temporary. This is temporary. And Philippians has given us some amazing promises to remind us of these things. Philippians 1, 6. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful or will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Whatever God's begun in you, he will be faithful to complete it no matter what circumstances, all the way until that day you see the Lord face to face. Philippians 1, 21 to live is Christ and to die is what? Yes. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And today in our passage, we have another amazing promise we have to lay hold of. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love that verse. Because how many of you would confess that you would like to do God's will, but you don't always want to? Yes? Are there any amens? So, God, I want to serve you with my whole life, but you're going to have to help me to be willing all the time. And not just in moments. Both the will to do God's will and the ability to do God's will. God knows our weakness. And so because of these promises, Paul is asking us to do something. And that's verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's getting to what he wants us to do, not just what God has done. What does it mean? Next question, what does it mean to work out your salvation? That's a big one. Many preachers have preached sermons stopping there at verse 12 that you need to work for your salvation. Any of you heard those messages? You need to try harder. And I confess, it's very easy for us preachers to fall into you need to do this mode. If you would just do this, then it would work out. To work for your salvation is not what Paul is saying. The Bible doesn't teach that. And anytime you hear any message that is in any way suggesting 
you have to work for your salvation or do these good works in order to get God to love you, that is either false religion or false gospel. How many books are there in the New Testament? I've probably said this before. 27. Everyone except one has a warning against false Christians, false gospels, false Christs, false teachers, everyone except Philemon. That will be on the test. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we can just set that aside. If you feel like you're a good person and you have something to offer God, then you're boasting. If you feel like you're not a good person and you have failed and failed and failed, then you might feel like you're left out of this salvation thing. There is no room for boasting and there's no cause for feeling left out. Because, you see, we are all in the same boat. We are all born separated from God and needing God to save us. By faith, you are saved without works. So Paul is telling us to work out, not work for, but work out our salvation. In other words, to work out God's purpose for saving you. If he has saved you and you said yes, God, forgive me of my sins. Bring me into the family of God. Now it is your job to start working out what, what he wants to do with your life. We don't just say, Lord, save me and wait around for heaven. What does he want to do with our lives? And that brings us back to the fact that our lives have purpose. And it has to get worked out. It has to get worked out. So my question is, what has God called and gifted you to do? You have to answer that question. We're not just talking about ministry things, like I have to go be a missionary, or I'm going to be a pastor or a worship leader. We're talking about everything in life. Look at everything you do that you are gifted to do, you are called to do, a mother, a father, a brother, a Sunday school teacher, a business owner. Everything we do in life that we are gifted to do, you were gifted by the Lord, and you can use it for yourself, or you can use it to honor the Lord. God's not going to make you serve him. And, of course, you can be a child of God and be self-centered. Don't say amen. You are saved by grace without works, by faith. 
That's a miserable life to be born again and to be self-centered. That is a very miserable life. Because you, you know there should be more. There's something in you compelling you to be more. But if you can't deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the Lord, you will be miserable and you'll make people around you miserable. The verb work out as work out your salvation, again, doesn't mean to work for, but it carries the meaning of working out a math problem to its completion. Or a farmer working a field to get the greatest yield and harvest out of the field. It carries the, me the, the meaning of a, a miner working a mine to get all of the gold or minerals out of the mine. You found the gold, but now it has to get worked to get out of it. Many of you have little kids. You're watching closely your children to see if they have suddenly going to show some special gift in sports or music or whatever it is. I have my, my grandkids, and it's like, I, I love music, so I'm thinking, dear God, will any of them love music? And so every once in a while, one of them says, you know, Noah, my six-year-old grandson, a few weeks ago says, Papa, I want to play drums. That lasted for a few days. I've got drums. I've got a wall full of guitars out in my office. Please come over and play. My 14-year-old grandson, I didn't know if I was going to talk about Asher today, Boy, whatever he's good at, he just practices a little bit. I say, can I help you with that? He goes, no, I've got it now. I know how to do it now. Oh, really? Well, let me know when I can help you out. When a child is born, it fascinates me that they are born with these talents and abilities. God gives it to them. As I knew at four or five years old that I had to play music, it's just the most interesting thing. But it still has to get worked out. It has to get developed. You have to even find a teacher. And that's the whole idea of discipleship, is putting yourself under a teacher who will disciple you, and what's related to disciple is discipline. I just want to play. I don't want to practice. But at some point, I thought, I have to find teachers, and I paid teachers to make me sweat at their studios. I study with David Garibaldi from Tower Power, um, other named people. And I paid them a lot of money to bring out of me what I thought was in me. But I couldn't get it out without their help. And I don't think I'm unusual. That's just my story. But I'm confident that God has given you unique abilities 
talents, and then to go along with that, the spiritual gifts that we know as Christians. And when these things are discovered and developed, our lives just get on fire. The Christian life is working out and bringing to full potential the gifts and calling of the child of God. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I counted on this verse as a teenager and in my 20s because at that time I was aimless. I really didn't know what I would really do as an occupation. But it was in the Jesus movement back in the mid-70s where I decided to completely put my life in the Lord's hands. And it's amazing now to look back and see how the Lord did it. I don't know what I was worried about. All the little turns and upsets and failures and disruptions and injuries along the way, I wish I would have just relaxed and enjoyed it. Because you see, God promised to be with me. And that's what I tell young pastors now in their 20s and 30s and 40s. You need to relax and enjoy this because the Lord is with you. Stop stressing out about the ministry. What is the reward of working out our calling? Paul speaks of, the, of God's good pleasure. Don't overlook those words. It is God's good pleasure. God's not angry at you or standing off at a distance waiting for you to fail. It is God's good pleasure to help you work it out. And as you're working it out to bless you and give you the rewards of working these things out that is the reward we call joy. Joy is the reward of having trusted the Lord and worked it out. That joy is not happiness, and that joy does not go away on another hard day. It doesn't go away when you get cancer. It doesn't go away with an economic collapse. It is consistent because Romans 8.28 is true. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. You only learn that promise when you go through the hard times. You come out the other side and then you look back and you go, that was amazing. Look at what God did. I thought my life was over. And in fact, the only reason I even came to Portland was because my life crashed in California. I never would have come to the Northwest. It rains 365 days a year here. 
I would wear shorts on Christmas Day in L.A. And yet the Lord had to make me come to the Northwest. He didn't tell me ahead of time how good it was going to be. I wish he would. But rather than coming because of some promise of how good things were going to be, God just said, Terry, will you trust me? Well, I will, but, but could you just tell me what's going on? Why are you doing it this way? Well, you'll see. The greatest lessons I have ever learned about the faithfulness of the Lord are in the dark times. Because it's in those days I had to choose to trust the Lord and see how things were going to work out. God wants to do good things because it's his good pleasure to bless you. Psalm 51 says, do good in your good pleasure to Zion, to Israel. Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that God adopted us as sons according to the good pleasure of his will. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. It is God's good pleasure to bless you. So I would say, why not let him do it? Just let him do what he wants to do. All he's asking for us is to cooperate with him. As I was raising three teenage girls at the same time, uh, and I got tired of driving them all over town, I would say, look, I would really love for you to be able to drive. It is my good pleasure someday to let you have the car keys but I'm gonna need to, to see that you're responsible and I can trust you with this responsibility. Joy and submission, you see, isn't submit and be happy. That is quite a frequent message we hear in churches. Well, if you would just submit. The only reason I am in the ministry and frankly in church at all is because I began to learn of the grace of God from Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith at Costa Mesa. I grew up in church and the message I heard in church was almost God's mad at you. And if you're a good Christian, as a teenager in the 70s, if you're a good Christian, it meant I wouldn't have long hair or listen to rock music. That, that was about the extent of don't be worldly. My mother would say, don't be worldly. I go, what does that mean? Well, get a haircut. I didn't really understand the love and the grace of God until hearing Pastor Chuck talk about it. And so Paul tells us the reward 
that will come from walking in obedience to the Lord. And another word for obedience might be yielded. I'm not gritting my teeth and obeying God. It's really more like I'm saying, Lord, here, take my life. I'm just going to stop resisting you. I'm going to go along with your plan for me, the yielded life. And so Paul mentions five things that are the reward of a yielded life. To be blameless and harmless. To be without fault as we stand before the Lord. To shine as lights in a dark world. To hold forth the word of life. All of those are in relationship to our relationships with each other in the church. We're blameless and harmless because, frankly, church members in, in Philippi were, were arguing, dividing. That's what happens when stress comes in. To be without fault before the Lord. To actually, in difficult circumstances, to be a shining light in, in your community. In fact, every church I go to that's going through some upset, I remind them that the community, the city, is watching how they're handling it. Do you know that? Now, your church is amazing. This is a healthy church, and the Lord is just blessing you so much. And what an amazing testimony that is to, the, to Portland and to this area. Because people hear, oh, what's going on over there? Well, the Lord's blessing us. How about that? Neener, neener. We'll show you. We're going to all get along. I don't know. There's trouble over there. I don't know. We haven't heard. The place is full. Pastor Kevin's doing an amazing job. Amen. That's a clue to applaud for him. <laughs> no, I didn't plan on doing that, but I think he's doing fine. You're just working things out to the next, the next season for the church. And the fifth thing that Paul mentions is for himself. He goes, I want to be able to rejoice in that day when I see the Lord and not feel like my labor for you, Philippians, has been wasted, that it was in vain. The ministry comes at a great sacrifice. Yes, it does, like parenting or other things that we do in life. But we're willing to do it if there is a, a payoff, if we see that our sacrifice counted, it was received. It's the labor of love that the Bible talks about. In closing, we'll just say, well, then how can we work out our calling? You have to make this personal. And all of this was personal, if you're wondering. I'm target preaching. You have to decide to work out your calling. Work out your salvation. 
So we connect the dots here in Philippians. Philippians 2.5, Paul already said, let this mind or let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's the clue. Be like Jesus, which is always just the lesson of discipleship. And so that part that was taught last week isn't just a lesson on who Jesus is, being God, became man, died on the cross, was risen from the grave, and is honored at the right hand of the Father. This is not a separate chopped off section. All of that was given as both evidence for faith and as an example for your faith. How do you work it out? What did Jesus do? Now, Jesus didn't come into the world and worked for his salvation. What did he do? He came into this world and he worked out his reason for being here. He humbled himself, submitted himself to the Father. He would say, I do only those things that are pleasing to the Father. The things that I say are from the Father. He would say, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to sinful men, crucified, in three days rise again. What was Jesus doing? Working out his calling in this world. So let this mind be in you, and you do likewise. Humble yourself. Do those things that are pleasing to the Father. There may be difficulty. And in fact, if you're going to serve the Lord in this world, there will be difficulty. Big shock. Because the world does not favor you living a godly life. But we do it because we have the promise of God that he will be faithful to finish what he's begun. We have the promise that he is working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We have the promise that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And I hope you know that your cross is not some irritation in life. Well, I've got a difficult husband. This is my cross to bear. That is not what it means. Jesus' cross was the cross, but that was his calling. Your cross is simply whatever God has called you to do. Find it and do it, and there will be great reward even in the sacrifice. But there will be such a lasting contentment that no one can shake. Doesn't matter what happens to you, and guaranteed trouble is coming, upsets come, cancer comes and goes. Join the club. But we're talking about joy that is for now and for eternity. And just this final word as the worship team and prayer teams, you can come up. Of course, all of this is 
by the work of the Spirit in our lives. So I don't want you to sit here this morning to say, that's it, Lord, I commit to you. I, am, I will completely do what you've called me to do. And Lord, I will be more committed than ever because we all know that we've made promises to God in the past that we haven't kept. We just want to get to that place where we say, Lord, I'm willing to do what you want. But Lord, you're going to have to do it. And do you know the Lord can receive that honest prayer? After Peter denied the Lord, all the Lord asked him to do was to love him. Peter, do you love me? And that's what the Lord asks of us. Not to be superhuman, not to make promises you can't keep. But he just says, do you love me? And if, you, if he has your heart, then he'll do the rest. Love is not rules and laws. It's saying, Lord, I want to do those things that are pleasing to you. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. <laughs> 